And I really look forward to today. I, I always do when I'm not here for a few weeks and then I come back. And I'm always so happy to be coming back. You know, I go other places and I teach and I meet very nice people and I like them very much. But I always feel like this is my uh, home field, you know. It's like when the Warriors play at the Oracle. And, but they're not going to do anymore. We have to get used to the Warriors not playing at the Oracle. But people do better in their home field. I've been watching the bike race, the Tour de France, every morning. And then they say, well, let's watch so-and-so, Philippe, something or other. And right now we're riding through his town where he lives. And all the people are shouting. And then you imagine that he's hearing all his people from his team. So you are the people from my team. And that's what I feel like when I come here. And I've also been feeling very much like uh, the sabbatical that I've planned, which starts in three weeks, is starting in three weeks. So we have three weeks. We have today and next week and the next week and then I won't see you until the 1st of January unless we cross in the street somewhere. And I think, oh, what I should do is I should be sure in these three weeks to teach everything that I really know. I planned planned a talk called Everything That I Really, Really Know after all this time. But then I realized that the gist of what I talk about today is really you never know. So that, uh, and the the other part of my talk is, I want to say we always know the same thing. We learned there are some fundamental truths that I certainly will talk about. But you say now I really get it. I used to think I got it, but now I really get it. And then sometime later I think, wow, I thought that I really got that, but now I really really get that. It happened a few weeks ago uh, when, uh, oh no, actually I just heard it this last week, but uh, I, I was in New York being, among other things, I was interviewed by Dan Harris, the man who wrote 10% Happier, the newscaster for ABC News. So he wrote a book that was very successful. Uh, it's called 10% Happier, which he talks about his having taken up mindfulness practice, uh, really gone on retreat and studied, and studied with a lot of the teachers that I studied with. And, they, uh, and his conclusion is that he's 10% happier. Anyway, he has a blog. He has a, a what do you call it, a um, podcast. So I... He invited me to be on his podcast, and while I was in New York, we had an interview scheduled, and I went and I met him, and he's really a very good interviewer. He's funny, and he's just tremendously bright. We had a good interview together, and as we were finishing, uh, um, I I can't remember why it was that uh, I told him a certain story. Mostly we talked about that I teach mostly by telling a story. I met a person once and they said this or someone said that. Or... And then I w- we had like three, three minutes to go, but he said, no, no, tell me that story too. So I said, it just reminds me of um, one person that I met once, uh, practically almost 35, 40 years ago, and I was just beginning to go on retreat. I said, but we don't have time. He said, no, no, tell me that story. So I told him this story. I told him the story that um, I met 
U Sivali, who was a monk from Sri Lanka, who was somehow visiting the United States and had come to the retreat center where I was then a retreatant for just that one week. And during the day, he was scheduled to do private interviews with retreatants about their practice. You, you, normally you do that. You meet with a teacher every couple of days. So I met with Lucivoli this one time and he said, well, tell me about any difficulties you're having with your practice. So I said, well, here's my question. I said, you know, sometimes uh, I get up, uh, I go to sleep fairly early. I go to sleep at 8.30 or 9 because I'm tired. But then I wake up at two in the morning and I'm wide awake and I have roommates there and, but I think to myself I'm wide awake I should get up now and quietly get dressed which I did and creep out of this room and walk across the whole campus and go to the meditation hall and sit down and start meditating because now I'm really wide awake I said so I do all that and I go to the meditation hall and I sit down and I'm really sit down. I thought, oh, good, I'm here. My mind is so quiet and peaceful, quiet and peaceful, and I'm too sleepy. Why did I come? I should have stayed in bed. This was a stupid move. Why did I do that? And then I get up and I say, well, I'll do walking meditation. I do walking back and forth, walking back and forth. Okay, this is a good idea. It's waking me up. Good idea. I'm waking up. Okay, now I'm waked up enough and I'm bored with this, so I'll sit back down. Oh, good, it was a good idea to walk. Now I'm really wide awake, clear, present with each moment as it arrives, getting sleepy. <laughs> then I, I said, so I, I do that the whole night because I'm not going to go back to my room in the middle of the night. I said, up, down, up, down the whole night. I said, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I should stay in bed. And he said, no, it is worth it. He said, get up and do that, he said, because... Every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. That's what he said. So I had a mental feeling. What do you think about when you hear the word erases? What did you feel? What? You have a mental image? Yeah, like the, Jeff is showing. They ha, maybe they have whiteboards now, or maybe they have different stuff. But when I went to grade school, we had big black blackboards, and people wrote with chalk. And they were actually erasing monitors who erased at different times during the day. But I have this picture when he said, "Get every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. I thought to myself, aha, so every moment that I'm sitting with awareness, not even sitting with quiet, but sitting with awareness of whatever is happening, because that's a moment of mindfulness, uh oh, I'm getting sleepy is a moment of mindfulness. It's a, what's going on? So I had this mental image of I was erasing some blackboard in the sky somewhere that was full of scribbles all over it, and that every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And then I was thinking, well, then, you know, I never know. I might be one scribble away from enlightenment, you know, if you just, because you don't know how much scribbling is already erased. Nor do I know how fast I am scribbling as I am erasing, so that my, my erasing should be faster than my scribbling. So I told that, uh, because you never know, erase is a moment of conditioning. And then, that's a good story, isn't it? So he liked it, I liked it, uh, uh, Dan liked it, I liked it, and I said, you know what? 
as I just told you that story now, I understood it better than I have in the 35 years since it happened. And I've told it a million times since then. But now I really got what he meant. Well, who knows? That was, you know, four months ago. I think I really got it. So what I keep thinking about since then is that this progress to clear seeing You know, before mindfulness was called mindfulness, when it took off in the United States and it became popular, it was called vipassana meditation because in Asia that was what it was called, vipassana. And that word vipassana translates as seeing clearly, which goes very well with erases a moment of conditioning. If your blackboard is not well erased, you see the last stuff there under it and it's fuzzy. Or if your glasses are fogged, you don't see well. And the idea of a, of a practice called vipassana, seeing clearly, is really matches the definition of what we're doing here. We're cultivating the ability to see clearly, moment to moment, this is what's happening, this is what's arising in me because of it. In that story, it would be what's, ha- um, what's happening is I'm now sleepy. And what's arising in me is annoyance at myself for getting out of bed so early and being a failure at this meditation, da 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 And seeing clearly is, yeah, that's all happening, but I can stay here because I'm erasing conditioning and now I feel good about myself. And besides, I feel good about myself because I came from parents who got up and worked early and I feel good about myself when I'm a good student. It's so complicated to think about all the things that make up a moment. We can just decide what's the best thing to do now. So I I thought to myself, that's what I should talk about. The idea of we're going to have insights and we'll have more insights and newer insights and newer insights. That's not true. We have the same insight over and over again, but we understand it better each time. We get it better each time. Uh, so that's really what I, what I, so I want, as a matter of fact, I want to talk about uh, the particularly, I wrote down the beforehand, I never do, normally I teach and then at the end I say, well, okay, the name of that talk was. <laughs> so I wrote down before today, maybe it'll turn out to be the name of the talk. I wrote down, to know the truth only seeks to cherish opinions. That's a line out of the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. To know the truth, really what's happening only cease to cherish opinions. Don't decide what happened or what you think about it first. I once had breakfast at a conference with one of the other. I was a presenter at a conference, and uh, this other person, I had breakfast with a man who was another presenter at that conference, and we hadn't known each other before. But I admired what he was teaching, and he apparently admired what I was teaching. And I invited him to have lunch with me in the lunch break one day so we could get to know each other. And uh, I was so excited about meeting him. And uh, I said, oh, I'm, I, I'm really so excited about meeting you. I really wanted to know what you thought about da-da-da, whatever it was. And he sat there for a while. I thought, oh, dear. 
I asked a bad question or it was too presumptive or it was too intimate or there wasn't something good about it. And then he started talking and he answered the question. And then he said to me, um, and what do you think about da-da-da? And I told him what I thought about it. Then I asked him another question. And again he sat for a while. And then finally I realized that in that sitting for a while, then he talked, that he was thinking, he was preparing to answer what he thought about that situation now, not the last time he gave the answer to it. You know, what do you think about that, Dan? All right, so now, what do you think about it now? Not the old answer. I want to talk about being sure to have the new answer of what do I think about it right now? Does this conflict with an opinion I was holding before? Maybe it's no longer a valid opinion. A whole bunch of more things happened this morning on that topic. Remind me about it. I wanted to tell you about watching the Tour de France this morning. But meantime, we haven't even said hello yet. So uh, there are a lot of people who are new this morning and I want to know everybody's names. So the people who I do know who are here for the first time in a long time, I just want them to stand up so you know who they are. This is my daughter Emily. There she is. Up. <laughs> Her friend and mine, Diane. And our friend, Wendy. And in front of them is my grandson, Harrison. And his girlfriend, Alex. There you go. Uh... Da, da, da. Harrison is having some important jaw surgery tomorrow, so we are all of us thinking good vibes on Harrison. Who else is... Usha Riggs is here. Usha, you have a new last name, don't you? Uh, it's Prescott. Usha Prescott. Catherine Usha Prescott, I know from a million years ago, renowned astrologer. Uh, yeah, that I, okay, thank you very much, people. How, where are the people that are new that I don't know? People who are new that I don't know, stand up. What's your name? My name is Jill. Where do you live, Jill? I live in Castro Valley. Oh, you drove all the way from there? I'm a teacher, so during the summer, it's one of the only do. You know, in the summertime, we get the teachers who are off in the summer. And you know, when I was a child, my father was a school teacher. Everybody in my family was a school teacher. And I thought in the summertime, people had, everybody, I had the summers off. And I used to spend the summers with my father, actually, a lot. So, good for you. Thank you for coming. And behind you is? Elliot, where do you live? Nashville. Nashville, as in Tennessee. <laughs> That's wonder wonderful. Are you touring the That's great. Where do you play music? <laughs> like perform in public? Where could everybody see you? In the next show in In where? In Oregon. It's a big trip. It's, it's a big commute. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Who else? Yeah. Uh, I'm Lynn. From Oakland. I see it says Oakland on your... Sure. Thank you for coming. And... I'm Al. And I'm from New Hampshire. Uh, 
Well, I'm happy that you're here. Uh, my husband and I were in Maine last week. That part of the country is beautiful in the summertime. Really lovely. It's cold in the wintertime. It's beautiful. Thank you for being here. Yeah. And where do you live? Oh, good. I'm glad you came this morning. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And you remind me to say, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you can be here. On the back table are flyers for another online class. One that I am not doing this time because I am having my five-month sabbatical. But Heidi is having that. And the information about the class is on the back table. What was the other information that I was supposed to tell about something? Tell about something. And what was the other information? The other pedantic information is please leave the chairs in the middle after class and please take all the chairs on either side and stack them back here. That was the other piece. Oh, Jashoda, what was the other piece? I knew I had three things. So the other piece is. Oh, four things. So there you go. It's it's the, the it's the nineteenth. It's the nineteenth to the twenty-first, the eighteenth to the twentieth, and it better not be the weekend before because I'll be in Europe the weekend before. So it's not then. And I just got reminded that next week on Wednesday is my birthday. It's my 83rd birthday. And the, the monitoring staff here at Spirit Rock, the volunteer staff, uh, said, asked me to invite you on their behalf to stay for cookies at 12 o'clock. This is a, that's how you have a party at Spirit Rock. You have cookies. <laughs> Friday the 18th to the 20th and cookies next week and bring your friends if you want to. I can't believe how I got to be 83. You know, you turn around and you're 83. I mean, how many people here are surprised about how old they are? Aren't you surprised about how old you are? How did this happen, you know? While I wasn't looking, I got to be 83. Go. Oh. 
Thank you very, very much. Thank you. You know what? I really like the podcast that I did with Dan also. Look at that podcast. Listen to that podcast. That, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, don't mean, I didn't mean to giggle right there. He said, uh, he remarked about how much I giggle. I don't notice it. But other people, and then after he remarked about it, then I heard it and I thought, oh, cackling away all the time. But <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I'm glad that you're here, Charlie. My grandson, I think, is just now living. Doesn't he live in Forest Knolls, or does he live... Where does Eric live? Uh, San Geronimo. San Geronimo. Oh, almost Forest Knolls. Same Valley. Same Valley. Thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here, Alice. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you came this morning. I'm Christy. I've actually been on Metro Retreat with you before, but never been here on Wednesdays. Um, the last time you saw me, I was 25 weeks pregnant. And so I'm very happy to be here. So how old is your child? He just turned two. Oh, that's exciting. Great. Great. I'm glad you came. I'm glad you came. So this class is really, this and Monday night is the oldest established. Always voting crap game in New York. <laughs> it's impossible, isn't it, to say oldest established without, who doesn't know that in its original guise? Who doesn't know? Okay, let's do it together. It's the oldest established permanent floating crap game in New York. It's from Guys and Dolls, and it's like, it establishes you at a certain age. Is that everybody? We did everybody. Okay, here we are. So, I will try to say over and over in the next three weeks everything that up to now I know, keeping in mind the proviso that we don't know anything new. Uh, uh, I think Dan said it in the interview, you don't go to an advanced mindfulness class. You go, you know, there is none. This is the instructions. Pay attention to what's happening right now, moment to moment, not what's happening around you. Most important is what's happening in you in response to that. I think about that sometimes when uh, I'm hearing a news broadcast and I'm maybe, I'm hearing the news and I'm totally dismayed about what I'm happening, what's happening. And I think, you know, there are people who are probably applauding, people who like that, you know, that that people who have another view, people who think that's good, and I don't think it's good. Or, that that everything everything is different. There's what's happening, which is the manifest thing, which might we might miss see anyway. But to be able to say this is what's happening, and this is what's happening arising in me, and what would be a good thing to do now, which depends very much on your mind not getting so blown away by what you think happened that you can't think clearly. You have to know. I too many times told the story, I think I told it to Dan as well on that, 
about the first act of Louisa Miller where the king gets the news his daughter is now not going to marry the prince in the adjoining kingdom what she's counting on because she's going to marry instead a regular townsperson whom she's fallen in love with and he sings anger is arising in me and three lines later he continues to sing and he sings I'm in a rage and three lines later he says speak to me of nothing but vengeance and I say to people that's a perfect example of the only one of those lines which is actually mindful awareness is anger is arising in me he could have sung anger is arising in me I think I'll go up to the ramparts and walk around three times or more and take deep breaths and calm myself down and see what else I can do rather than foment a war but instead and then probably at the end of this opera we would all be alive instead of all dead but he doesn't do that so how to keep the mind clear to know anger is arising in me this is a sign I need to do something now I was thinking at the end this morning I was looking over what I was going to say and I think the acronym for it is wait what am I thinking what am I thinking is what? not even how am I feeling because the feeling arises but what am I thinking about this okay I'm going to do this I'm going to do that wait doesn't mean wait forever it means there's got to be a pause between the stimulus and the reaction and one of the great things about human beings is that we're not governed by our nervous system you know uh, lizards are governed by nervous systems uh, we have this very big mind that we can say ah look what's happening what should I do now what I want to do now is I've been saving this. This is, a, this is an artifact that um, I began using when I was teaching. Let's just see what I want to do with this. When I was teaching um, in uh, New York State three weeks ago or something, teaching at Garrison Institute. And this is an artifact that I brought with me. It was a uh, house guest present for the people I was going to visit in Maine and on the way to the visit I used the house as present as the artifact to teach mindfulness now let me see if I can take it out of here okay this I'm hiding it you see <laughs> people like this very much okay here we go now this is what all right, this is fog, right? This is a fog globe. It's a present from San Francisco. What will emerge in the fog? You tell me. What's going to be? Going, you think? Huh? Jerry Garcia? Who thinks Golden Gate Bridge? All right. Da da da. Da, da, da. That's right. Can you see it? 
So it's a Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> it's a Golden Gate Bridge. So now, if I put this away, the Golden Gate Bridge. If I put this away for a while, and I take it out a minute from now, and I say to you, who knows what's in here? You say, with some assurance, right? (laughs) Still the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Pretty much a good guess. Now, it would be really great if Coit Tower showed up. (laughs) But that's not going to (laughs) happen. It's going to be the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's how we do most things. You know, when you ride down a freeway and you see suddenly, this is a bat, there's a terrible image, but many people have had the experience of driving down the freeway fast and you see a big dark lump at the side of the road and you think, oh, it's a deer, someone hit a deer. And then you drive up and you think, see, it's an abandoned tire, it's not a deer, it's something else. And you say, phew. You haven't had that experience where you miss see something. We miss see and we miss hear. Sometimes we correctly see and correctly hear. But we respond whether it's correct or not correct. So the, 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 the point being of that is that part of the wait is wait to see that it's what you think it is and then figure out what's the appropriate step to this. One of the, one of the things important to say now is we'll talk probably next week about the Eightfold Path because you can't say this is what I know in the whole of Buddhism without at least going through the Eightfold Path. And people know it a lot. And the one that they hardly mention is a step on the path called wise effort. It's it's linked together with the steps of wise concentration. Okay, everybody gets that without too much explanation, wise concentration, would be having enough ballast in the mind, having the mind steady enough so that when you hear a certain piece of news or you see something by the side of the road or you someone tells you something and you startle, you say, wait, I'll just see what this is, wait, but I don't, I don't tip over. Concentration is what keeps you going. Mindfulness, wise mindfulness, which is linked with it, is then knowing what's happening. This is a this, this is a that, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. Wise effort is the determination in every moment to choose one's action on the basis of whether it will lead to a wholesome response or an unwholesome response. That very king who says, speak to me of nothing but vengeance, I'm in a rage, the ra- when, when the mind is all stirred up, the mind's in a rage, it can't see what to do. can't figure out what's good for it. If it could, it would know if I make a uh, vengeful response, my daughter will be upset, everybody will be upset, it will all end up dead. And if I make a thoughtful response, it'll be otherwise, and we'll all end up alive, we'll do something else. That choosing, choosing a response that does not lead to suffering. You say, well, how can you know in advance if it's going to lead to suffering or not? If it's inspired by what's called an unwholesome impulse, then it's going to end up not good. And an unwholesome impulse is greed or vengeance or 
hatred, greed or hatred or delusion. That's a good way to do that. Greed, I need that. Hatred, get it out of here. Delusion, I don't know what's going on, but I'll just make it worse. (laughs) To be able to say, wait, uh, I once, I can't believe I just remembered this. Many, 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 many years ago, when people were still smoking cigarettes, I remember hearing uh, someone talk about, wait a minute, how was it? Someone talk about when you're teaching a class and someone asks a question and it's a hard question or you're giving a lecture and it's in the days that instructors were smoking in the class, you can't even imagine that. But that one of the ways that people cope with, I don't know the answer, is they take a long pull on a cigarette and then they blow it out. And talking about that if you're not a smoker, it's hard to take a long breath. (laughs) During which time, it would do the same good as a cigarette, more good actually when you think about it, without the cigarette. But if we could take a long breath in between and out, say, wait a minute, I'm about to behave impulsively, let me not do that, let me just think. With that as a preamble and this, I wanted to just go back to one overarching definition of contemplative practice. Like, I, this is didactic practice. I've been talking, and you've been listening. That's didactic practice. Con- contemplative practice is you let the mind settle down, you leave it alone, you don't put too much extra in. Those of you who I know for a long time, I've heard too many renditions of the story of Thich Nhat Hanh and the apple juice to tell it again. But for those who haven't, just visualize if you take out unfiltered apple juice and shake it up, it's all cloudy. And if you pour it in a glass and you leave it on the table for a while, the cloudiness settles down and it looks very clear. And uh, if you wanted to see through it, you could see through it because it's not obscured. Thich Nhat Hanh used that analogy in a story about what happens to the mind when you meditate. You leave it alone and the apple juice settles out or the snow in a snowball filters out or the fog in a fog ball filters out. And then you say, oh, it really is a Golden Gate Bridge. It really is how disappointed I am that my daughter is not going through with this wedding and how that complicates my finances. Now I'll have to figure out another way. Maybe I can negotiate a treaty with that person next door. Maybe I can do something else. That wise effort is picking out the response that leads to not suffering, not a response that leads to more suffering. And it's an action that comes out of wisdom rather than out of greed or hatred or delusion. That's really the whole point of whatever we're doing. It's not only the point of meditation, it's the point of how we live our lives to act out of wisdom about what the possible outcomes can be rather than living impulsively. And I think it's true if you think about different kinds of uh, meditative instructions like visualize a candle flame or visualize um, 
a vista that's uh, all beautiful with the sun rising. You can visualize a, you can visualize something that will calm the mind down. You can visualize uh, a candle flame. You can look at an actual candle flame. What we're really trying to do is cause the apple juice to settle, cause the, the fog to settle down and just see what's there without added stuff. You can do it by saying a mantra over and over again. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. So I think that today, and maybe next week we'll do a different variation of that, I'd like for us to do that for our contemplative practice. Pretend, not pretend, uh, realizing that the mind is now probably filled with ideas. I, I hope I've been interesting. So the mind is stimulated up. And just sit still. There's something about sitting still. You can sit with your eyes open, if you, especially if you're sleepy, sit with your eyes open. If you're sitting with your eyes open and you have a view outside, it's nice to look outside. Not to check out what's there, but just to rest the eyes on what's here. If I keep my eyes open, I just look at the ceiling, which is so pretty and plain. And I know everybody's in here. Sometimes I close my eyes. But to sit still and be a recipient through the senses of whatever touches a sense door. I actually always close my eyes in the beginning so I can listen better. Even notice as you listen, there are little sounds here and there. There's a sound of people breathing, maybe yourself breathing, people coughing. It's just not even to evaluate it. Just, that's it. Our whole consciousness, our ears are hearing, our body is feeling the chair under your bottom, and your arms along your body. Your body is feeling how it widens out as breath comes in and breath goes out. The shoulders rise up and come down and rise up and come down. 
can open your eyes if you want to. It's not to look for something, but just to notice the light that comes in. And see how the mind can just rest, knowing that seeing is happening without looking for anything. Just here I am, a living being, being informed through my senses and through my consciousness in the way of thoughts of what's going on right now, what's happening, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what the mood in my mind is. And really the instruction is don't have a problem with it. Whatever is happening is happening. One of my closest meditation teachers told me that his favorite instruction to himself, no matter what was happening, was to say to himself, this is okay, this is fine, this is okay, don't have a problem. Meet every moment without it being a problem. Meet it as a friend. I'll sit quietly. And we'll all sit quietly for 20 minutes or so.
it's our habit here at the end of um, a period of sitting quietly to reserve some space for people to mention into the space people that they're connected to, who they're thinking about, either because this is a time in their life of particular joyous celebration or because it's a time in their life when it's a particular challenging situation, just so that we can um, all think about them together, people that we know and people that we don't know personally but think about. Among the people I'm thinking about today is I'm thinking about my grandson Harrison, who'll have some jaw surgery tomorrow and will undoubtedly be well after a period of not being able to open his mouth for 10 days. So I am thinking about him with a lot of uh, good energy. Who are you thinking about today?
May everybody that we mentioned and everybody that we didn't mention but thought about and all of us feel well taken care of, well held, well celebrated, well nourished. We may we also feel supported in our lives, in all our bonds, with all the people that we care about. May all beings be companioned and feel at ease. I also often say at this point, and I'm saying it again, that I seriously think that that last 
five minutes or so when we mention people that we love and care about is like the most important teaching in the whole in the whole morning it's so you know it's like critiquing a, a moment of sincere prayer I don't mean to be doing that but if I had forgotten the first noble truth that life is complicated and challenging for everybody it's such a reminder that everybody's got everything I'm always surprised at the things that people have oh that's another thing that somebody has and that's another thing that somebody has it's like everything happens to everybody different things the the scope of what can happen to a mind or a body is enormous of the of the difficulties and of the joys that can happen to people the successes the surprises that could happen to people some really dismaying things could happen and we could fall in love with someone and they might love us back that's a pretty amazing thing that could happen I also learn every time we do that how much I, I, I have a good, such a good opinion of human beings' uh, emotional capacities because what, what happens to me, and I'm sure it happens to you, is you hear about somebody and you don't know them and maybe you didn't even make out the person's name but something difficult is happening to them and you think, oh, and you feel it in your body, don't you? You think, oh. Yeah, somebody said, Dominic is 21. Oh, oh, that's good. And Frank, I know Frank Ostaseski. Oh, startled. Oh. And the fact that other people's hearts and other people's stories affect our hearts whether or not we know them. We get startled, we get surprised, we hope for them, we pray for them. We don't even maybe know them. We just heard their story. Makes me feel so good about being a person. That's a really an extraordinary skill to be able to care about people that you don't even know. It might be even the best thing that human beings can do is care about people. And it's also always reminding me that um, in a certain way the best thing we do do is care about people and do something about it. There's, I, I just again this week was talking with someone about um, the oddness. One of the books about the Dalai Lama has a wonderful book, not written by him, written again by people about him. But it, it has, when I first read it, the first sentence is... Um, surprising or it was to me anyway the first sentence in the whole book is the purpose of life is to be happy I thought well that's a weird thing to say about I mean it's a strange thing to say about the Dalai Lama he is so selflessly spending his whole life trying to make things better for the world and for the Tibetans and for people to have understanding about to take care of themselves but as you read and as you get to know him it follows through that taking care of people and being present for people and being interested in people and connecting to people if you know them personally like oh my goodness Frank 
because you know him personally, but someone else that you don't know personally. And in that moment, I think, feeling alive because, whoa, somebody's life is calling me to be interested in them. It's calling me out of my own self-interest. I think we can either be preoccupied with our own self, poor me, whoa, or look at me, hey, or whatever it is. We can be fall, implode on our own self and our own story. And uh, I, I just recently, I think I told you, that uh, I was reading some book, that some history book, that said that Franklin Roosevelt fell in love with his... Um, his cousin Eleanor and uh, married her actually because he read her college thesis or her college final paper the topic of which was if you want to be happy the surest way to be happy is to take care of other people so the surest way to be happy is to take care of other people and I think about that now in a fuller way I understand it better than I used to because first of all, taking care of other people, you're not preoccupied with yourself, so few. I can think about these other people. And connecting with the other person in whatever way we do is I think what makes us feel alive. And on that point, I want to invite our friend John Namkung to come up and sit with me up here. Uh, how many of you have not met John before? How many of you know John from before? It's about half and half, John. So here comes Bill. He's going to fix you up with this. Here comes Bill. Oh, there you go. He's bringing you up. So maybe while Bill is bringing up the... That. I want to tell you, John's been coming to class now for... Two years. Um, he is a retired uh, special ed teacher. Testing. Not on. Bill's going to turn it on. He's coming. Okay. Okay. Teacher and administrator. An administrator in uh, Sonoma County yes. for many years. Yes. And we first got to know John. Why don't you tell about your previous experience in Greece? You know, three years ago during the, um, the height of the mass migration of Syrian refugees and others to Western Europe, you all remember that, over a million refugees. Um, uh, I went to Greece and volunteered at a camp um, on the border of Greece and Macedonia. Um, and basically I joined a group cutting vegetables every day and making soup, hot soup that we served to about four to 5,000 refugees in this camp uh, every single day. So that was three years ago. I remember when you first showed us the pictures, what I was struck with, um, of you standing with this great cauldron of soup, and and maybe it was in the photo, or maybe you told us that the line of people waiting was out till the horizon. Yeah, it was as soon as the truck pulled up, all of a sudden there was a line that just went 
as far as you could see. And people would stand in line for, you know, hour, two hours just to get a little cup of hot soup and a piece of pita bread. And it was really heartbreaking because um, there were days when it would be raining and the rain would just be coming down and people would be standing in line for an hour or two hours. And then there was this one time when, you know, he's just so busy serving the soup and I just happened to look up because we were at the bottom of the this big pot and I realized there was only enough for maybe 15 cups of soup and I looked up and the line was still all the way to the horizon, which meant all those people who had been standing in the rain for that period of time were not going to be fed. So it was, it was very difficult um, to deal with that, but at the same time, I was able I was grateful that I was able to help in some way. So why don't you tell now, before we have been, how many people have been reading John's blog? Uh, We knew you were going, and um, some people were reading the blog. uh, But tell about how it came to be that you decided to go to the Yazidi work this time. For those of you who don't know, the Yazidis um, are a small religious minority group who lived in northern Iraq, close to the Syrian border. And there, there are only probably 500,000 of them. But they basically live very peacefully as villagers, farmers, in the rural areas uh, close to the border. Until five years ago, on August the 3rd, uh, 2014, so almost five years in a f- couple of weeks, um, all of a sudden one day um, ISIS fighters showed up in the villages without any warning and they cut off all the escape routes um, from the villages except one which was to go up the mountain. There's a very high mountain called Mount Sinjar. Um, but they gathered all the villagers and separated them into groups and they took all the men to the edge of the village and they shot and killed them. Um, then they took all the old people and they also took them to the edge of the village and they shot and killed them. Um, then they took the young women and girls and took them out of the villages where they were sold as sex slaves and there were about probably 4,000 young women, mothers, sisters, nieces, and children as young as eight or nine years old have been documented as having been raped, passed from one fighter to the other. Um, and then on top of that, several thousand of them were able to escape up the mountain and uh, they had to travel for seven days or eight days up a very steep mountain, and many of them died from starvation and hunger, um, lack of water, food. And uh, the ones who were lucky enough made it into Syria and then eventually ended up in different refugee camps. I first heard about the Yazidi from watching a documentary called On Her Shoulders, which is about a young Yazidi, young woman, 
activist named Nadia Murad, who last year won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for her work. Most of you have probably never heard of the Yazidis. I hardly, I remember hearing something in the news about this five years ago, but it was like, oh, here's another atrocity, here's another genocide. Um, but once I watched the documentary and read the book that she wrote called The Last Girl, um, where she was taken as a sex slave and managed to escape, um, I just decided at that point I had to do something. I couldn't just stand or sit here and read about this, so I volunteered with a group called Lifting Hands International. It's a small American-based aid group who operates a, a program for Yazidi refugees in northern Greece. There's about 550 of them living there. And so I went last month and I just came back on Friday after working there for a month. And um, basically I did two things. I started a basketball program for the children. Um, but it was not your typical basketball program. It was on a dirt field with weeds and rocks and stones and so on. Um, and I, through donations, I was able to purchase a very good basketball hoop um, and some basketballs. And we played basketball every day in 95-degree weather. Um, but the kids loved it. I also taught English um, four hours a day, and that was the most rewarding experience I have ever had teaching. They were so open to learning. They were so excited. They were um, they were just so eager, and they were so eager to show what they've learned. Um, it was amazing. I've never experienced teaching for a whole hour and having every teenage child you know junior high school age early high school age they were with me every single second of them of the lesson and those of you who are teachers know what a what an experience that would be to have your students teenagers on their edge of the seats excited about learning um, it was just amazing so I developed very very strong bonds with my students and uh, unlike three years ago where it was basically serving soup to thousands of people. Um, and so it was, it was a very uh, gratifying experience. And the good news, I think, is that we're talking about, my wife and I are talking about going back next spring uh, to volunteer again um, when the weather is a little bit um, better. We were... The entire three, uh, entire month I was there, um, Europe was in this heat wave, and in Greece, it was we were in the high nineties every single day, and humidity was in the probably the eighties or nineties. Um, the day I left and came back to the states, the heat wave broke, <laughs> so they're now experiencing heat in the eighties. So. Um, we're hoping to go back next spring and continue the work there when the weather's a little bit uh, better. So, actually, even I have read the blogs 
and kept up with it. But as a, as a, you know, let me not say what was. It's it's overwhelming to hear that, isn't it? Isn't it hard to keep your ears open? I'm glad that you did. I mean, that was. I'm glad that you said that. But it's it's not. It's we're not there. Is it what I just said before about you hear about people when we share and you say my uncle or my aunt or somebody and we don't know the person but we hear what's happening to them, it hurts us. And not only it's somebody's in this room's aunt or uncle, but nobody of the Yazidis is our aunt or uncle. They are people on the whole other end of the world. And it's painful to listen to what people do to people. And I, I, you know, when you said in such a plain voice, they took the men to the edge of the village and they killed them, and they took the, and they took the, they took the women, and they used them as sex slaves, children. It's like you can't stand to have that. That even it's hard for me to even say it now. It's, it's to, to 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 figure how. You and Diane, did you have trouble while you were there to be thinking about what had had to happen to all these people? Yeah, there were conflicting emotions. Like I had a class of five young women, ages 20 to 22 or so. Beautiful. Beautiful. There's a photo of more than one. Beautiful women. Who would have been around 15 at the time that the genocide and, and the kidnapping occurred. And I always wondered which of my students were captured by ISIS and somehow escaped. I mean, which one of these um, lost their their husbands or their fathers or their brothers? We weren't allowed to ask, you know, probing questions and pry into their affairs, but... Um, it was always this feeling like, um, um, which ones of these, what did they experience, what did they see, and where are they now? So, yeah, there was, at the same time, there was always this feeling of joy and happiness. Tell a little bit about the experience of trying to set up the basketball. I thought that was so funny. Um, well, the hoop that I had ordered from a Greek uh, sporting goods company in Athens experienced uh, a number of delays. Um, I'm not going to go into all the the issues, but um, we got this big box with about 135 pieces that we had to put together. And the manual says it takes about uh, an hour and a half or two hours to put it together. It took six of us six hours to put this thing together. Um, but we finally got it up, and um, yeah, it was it was a it was a real challenge. But once we got it up, it was like the center of the field of the center. Kids just every time I walked to the camp there to the center, kids were playing basketball. Did you mount it as high as a regulation basketball hoop? It's one of the portable hoops, which is great because you can change the height from very low to regulation 10 feet. So we had little kids, like three or four years old. 
I was able to lower it down and then they could shoot. And then next kid comes up and they're like 12 years old and I was able to um, raise it up so that they could shoot. And so You had one hoop? One hoop. One hoop, yeah. Maybe next year you bring the other hoop. <laughs> I'm thinking of ways of how to construct a um, some kind of a, a court so they don't have to bounce it on dirt fields. So we're kind of thinking about that. Tell about, uh, what was Diane's experience? What did you, I'm sorry she couldn't come today. I am too, yeah. She came um, for two weeks out of the four and worked with the little children um, in doing di- different arts and crafts projects and spe- especially worked with some artists, young artists, uh, who did some amazing work. Um, and, and she took a whole big suitcase full of art materials, sketchbooks, paints, crayons, pencils, etc., to donate. And you just carried that with you? I mean, you took that on the plane? She took the whole suitcase on the plane, yes. What was the language? What language do these people speak? Uh, they speak a kind of Kurdish language called Kurmanji, and or Arabic. They know, most, most of them know both, so... Um, but a lot of them spoke English, um, and you're able to communicate with them. But uh, as I mentioned in my blog, the most, the kindest, gentlest, um, open, grateful people I have ever met in my life, considering what they have gone through, the horrors. It's just, it's, uh, it's hard to believe that people can be that kind in open, in loving, um, having gone through that experience. But, um, yeah, they were, I knew nothing about them before I, I left. Uh, I feel like I, I know them as my family. You know, when you said that phrase just before, I've never met anyone who could be so kind and so open. What I was thinking about is the spectrum of ways that human beings can be because um, on that, I mean, here are people who have, under tremendous stress, remained kind and loving. And, and uh, one of the things that is a conundrum, actually, I was going to bring it up with everybody to think about, because this is one of the things that I think about a lot, like what did I think about after, after 40 years? And what do I know better? I was thinking about the simplest way to say what the Buddha taught is the Buddha taught if you paid attention you would see that life is challenging for everybody in different ways in the normal ways of you age and things happen even if nothing um, uh, with ill intent happened to you there are sicknesses in the world you could fall, things could happen all, there are all kinds of things that could be disappointing and frustrating and yet uh, we manage to continue on, and we can uh, and we can develop compassion for people who are dealing with any kind of a loss or a hardship, because we know how it feels in us. And the Buddha's rubric is when you are aware of the fact that everybody faces challenges in their life, then you realize that first of all, I'm just like everybody. I have challenges in my life, and just like me, I want to be content. I want to not be 
worried about what's going to happen. I'm not going to have to worry about medical care or worry about feeding my family. I want my mind to be content. Of course, I want that for other people. And so the rubric is that people pay attention, they become aware, they uh, are transformed from self-centered to other-centered, and then they're happy because they're connected to people. But not everybody. That's the thing that I think about, that some people are there. These Yazidis have managed to, against all odds, remain kind and loving and uh, interested in living. And some people who are have an abundance of security in a, in a kind of a physical way in the world have not yet learned that taking care of other people is what's going to make them the happiest. And how is that? Uh, I used to have a way to... This is one of the things that's changed over the years. I used to say in a way too simplistic way, when the mind is clear, the heart is open. That's a very, and I used to say that, not meaning to be smug, da da da, but when the mind is clear, you look around, people are suffering. You try to take care of them, or you try to try to help them out in some way. I grew up in a family where people live that way. When people are in trouble, you take care of them, but not everybody does. You know what I was thinking? Um, when the mind is clear and the heart is open, you will do the right thing. And by that I mean, you don't have to go to Greece um, and volunteer in a camp for Yazidis. Um, It could be just in your own neighborhood or in your own family or in your own community. We see people suffering. And, And when the mind is clear and the heart is open, you'll do the right thing. Whatever it is, whoever you run across, I think you'll just be compelled to do the right thing. I think so. Stay here with me, John. I want to do a couple more things and I want you to read that last blog. That um, one of the things that I printed out yesterday from um, uh, what arrived in the internet was um, an incident with the Border Patrol that had happened the day before. Maybe you read about it in the newspaper of a, uh, a child, uh, uh, a mother and a father and three children from Honduras were being separated at the border and the father was being sent back. And the three-year-old child uh, had had heart surgery and was uh, coming back into the country, was in a border camp, was coming back in because she needed some more surgery and this is all corroborated Doctors came. She had had heart surgery, and uh, they uh, ultimately they were brought in. But the and ultimately, her father also was allowed to come in. But at some point, the border patrol people were saying, "Well, he has to go back. The mother can stay with the children for her to have the surgery." And they asked the three-year-old, "Who do you want to go? Should your father stay with you here, or you want your mother to stay?" The three-year-old is now going to make the decision about should her mother or her father be separated. Can you not stand even to hear that in this country we're asking people that to make that decision? Make tears in your eyes, yes? I mean, Anyway, ultimately, from various judges and various doctors who got to make the call, they're all here. And who knows what's going to happen next. But that, that even has to go through 
for people to decide, should we take this family with a, with a child whose heart is not yet well? And the last line of that, the last line of the two-page report is, uh, so they, they are now allowed to stay in the United States. Uh, and the interviewer says, what happens then for them? And the response is, they left on Sunday to join family already in the Midwest. The mother is hoping that they and the kids can get educated here, that they can't go back to Honduras. She says they're not a danger to anyone. They just want an opportunity. I mean, that we have to even say that, you know, that every day that's happening all over the place. And what I think about so much is I hope that I am right that the human heart, as you said, if the mind is clear, we do the right thing. I hope that's true. And I, I, I'm thinking it gets confronted every day when people don't do the right thing. Why is their mind not clear? What is happening? Um, it's, a, it's a conundrum. How can people not see? When, we, I, when I listen to John tell that story about they took the men, they took this, or young girls being sex slaves. I, it, it's like my mind can't even bear to say that. And I think to myself, how can this happen with human beings who can do such amazing acts of valor and kindness? And uh, There are some people who will volunteer to go with Doctors Without Borders to answer an Ebola epidemic in another country. And there are some people who are separating children at the border. How can that happen? Anyway, how can it? But I also want John for you to talk about your final thoughts on the, on the last day. Do you want to read the blog? Sure. I had written my last blog on my uh, on my way home from Greece. Wait, wait, wait! I want to say everybody is feeling bad that they don't have the whole blog. Can they still get? That? Isn't that true? Don't you want to read the whole blog? So, how can they get it ex post facto? Well, it's a long um, URL. Maybe if someone um, could oh, just put a some. piece of paper on the back table and just write your name and your email address, print it for me, I'd be happy to send you the link if you're interested uh, in reading uh, the blog. I have to say it's a very good blog. <laughs> Actually, it is. Those people who read the blog, what do you think? Yes, yes. No, I'm sorry? Is there a name for the blog? Yeah, it's called Healing and Empowerment of Yazidi Refugees. It's part of WordPress. WordPress is the, the, the company that sponsors the board. But if you oh, sign your name and put the email address... Yeah, it would be best if you just put your name down and your email, and I'll just send you the link, and you just can click on it get the whole thing but so I thought I wrote my last one on the way home uh, from Greece and then when I got home you know sometimes when you're in the middle of something it's just too much you can't really um, you can't really uh, synthesize what you've experienced so it was only after I got home and I had a little bit of time to relax and think about it I wrote an epilogue. Um, I said, I lied when I said that the last post was my final one. This is the final one. 
The day after I returned home, I discovered an interview that Nadia Murad gave with BBC Television in 2016 that I had not seen. You may remember her from my previous post when I wrote about watching the documentary On Her Shoulders, which was about her efforts to educate the world about the genocide of the Yazidis. I also wrote about the painting that the young artist Halia made of Nadia. Nadia Murad occupies a special part in our lives because if we hadn't watched On Her Shoulders, Diane and I wouldn't have gone to Sarah's to volunteer. I'm grateful to my brother Paul for telling me about the film. Um, that film can be viewed on um, Amazon or YouTube if you're interested. Nadia's interview on BB tele BBC television can be viewed at, and I put the link to a YouTube um, site. The interview lasts for 24 minutes, and for those of you who wonder why we traveled halfway around the world to help the Yazidis, I urge you to please watch the interview in which she talks about how 18 members of her family were either killed or are still missing. After watching the interview, I think you'll begin to understand the swirl of conflicting emotions that overcame me every day. Sadness. Knowing the background story of why the Yazidis were in the refugee camp in Ceres. Happiness. Watching my students laugh at my corny jokes. Despondency. Knowing that probably some of the women and girls at the Lifting Hands International Field had been the sex slaves of ISIS. Pleasure watching the children grab the bag of basketballs from my hands so that they could start shooting. Grief, knowing that almost everyone had lost a relative or loved one during the genocide or during their escape over Mount Sinjar. Joy, seeing the young women dance with Diane and other volunteers at the end of the hafla. Hafla means a party or celebration that we had every Saturday, with big smiles on their faces. Sorrow, knowing that the Yazidis have been scattered like seeds all over the world, and it will be a long time, if ever, before they can return to their homes and rebuild their lives. Grateful, grateful that this group of Yazidis and Sarahs at least have a community that they can call home, that is safe and protected. Anger at how human beings can be so cruel to other human beings. Awe, seeing before my very eyes the resiliency of the human spirit. And finally, love and compassion for all Yazidis everywhere. In the Buddhist tradition, there is a metta, loving-kindness meditation that is the simple practice of directing well wishes to all people. I direct it to the Yazidis, and one version goes something like this. May all beings far and near, all beings young and old, beings in every direction, be held in great loving-kindness. May they be safe and protected. May they be healthy and strong. May they be truly happy. 
That's a version that Jack Cornfield um, wrote. And finally, Mam Noon, meaning thank you. I asked John particularly to bring that last blog and read it um, just because of the particular, everything is there, the mind can, it's amazing to me how the mind can be angry and filled with awe, not simultaneously, but consecutively, moment to moment, angry and then filled with awe and then filled with thanksgiving and then filled with alarm and filled with uh, dismay and filled with this and filled with that. It's very hard, I think, to be a person in the swirl of a mind and be able to say, okay, I'm just waiting till this settles out so I'll know what to do. What should I do now? All of this is happening because anger arises and um, despondency and despair. I once asked a friend of mine who was a tremendous political activist in the, back in the 80s, often working amazingly hard, long hours in support of some action that didn't turn out well, that, that, that didn't win. And I asked her, I said, how do you keep on going, not be overwhelmed with, it's useless, you can't do anything. She said, well, I, when I feel like that, I call my friends. And I just talk to them. And I only have to talk to one other person who sees things as I see them. And then somehow it's not that I'm not alone in the world thinking that this needs to be fixed. There's another person who mirrors my feeling. There must be more in the world who mirror that. I'm so glad for you are going and for you letting us know. Does anybody have anything they want to ask John? Or say. Thank you. Here is somebody wants to say thank you. Yes, definitely thank you. I, I just was wondering: um, Are they there to eventually go back home? You know, ISIS was defeated uh, in Iraq and Syria recently. Um, but they can't go back home. It's there's nothing there. The villages have been bombed and so on, and they still fear for their lives. They lived very peacefully with their Arab neighbors in the villages until when ISIS appeared. Many of the Arab neighbors turned against them and cooperated with ISIS. So they're very, very frightened about having going back to where they where their homes are, and they don't trust the Iraqi government um, in the sectarian conflicts between the Shiites and the Sunnis and so on. So they are not going to be returning in the near future. So basically, they're scattered all over the world. Um, many in Germany, uh, and many of the refugees that I met are trying to get to Germany because they have at least a community there of, of um, Yazidis. But some countries have been very, very generous in taking in the Yazidis, uh, notably Canada, 
um, Australia, Germany. Uh, there is a group of Yazidis in, of all places, Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I'm thinking I'd like to go there and visit them. But anyway, they're, they're just scattered everywhere, and many of them are in refugee camps in a kind of in a holding pattern. Um, but it's not, it's not, there's not a lot of optimism. Um, when you're scattered like that, it's going to be hard to get them all back together where they were before as a community. So um, who knows what's going to happen. You told me yesterday, whenever we spoke, that about how big is that, that that refugee settlement is rather big. The one that I just went yeah. to? No, actually, it's about, oh, there are probably about five or six hundred living there at this time. Does it look like a village? What does it look like? Um, actually, um, they live in what looks like a trailer park here in the United States. They're little trailers. In a, and it's all funded by the European Union. The uh, European Union uh, has given Greece the money um, to construct these trailers with air conditioning and with heating, etc. So at least they're living in relative comfort. They're not living out in the elements in the tents and so on like three years ago. So, um, And there's a sign that the European Union put up by the park there, their, their refugee camp, saying something about helping refugees um, who have been displaced. And I put that on my post and said, uh, it just puts our country to shame. Because here's a sign that says, we welcome refugees, and we're providing these trailers, and etc. Um, that same EU that just elected a woman president yesterday. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, I was happy right. about that. Yeah. So, you know, there is some good being done, um, but it's still not the same as being in your own village, your own home, your own community. So I wanted, I, I had one, thank you so much anyway for coming. I had one story that somebody told me yesterday that I wrote a note to myself. I said, be sure to tell about this. But I was waiting for a time to tell about it. So this, first of all, we were running out of time, so I want to tell about it for that. But it's, I, I actually got so pleased about this story, picked up my spirit. So my friend who told me the story is a rabbi. She told me that the oldest member of her congregation is 106 years old and had just uh, engaged hospice because she really felt like her end was near and She'd said, you know, I, it's just too much of an effort, and I, you know, I don't. She's clear of mind and all that, but I don't want to go on my body, etc. He just engaged hospice, and my friend was going to visit her at home, and came there, and she was not in bed, and she was out and dressed, and uh, seemed in a uh, in a more robust mood, and she said, you know, I thought that you were more near the end than you are. She said, yeah, she said, I was. I felt like I was, and I was ready to pass. But then I heard that on September 20th, there's a climate march. <laughs> it's, I mean, I did not make that up. <laughs> Is that not a good story? 
I want to go on that climate march. I need to do that. So. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a climate activist and I'm actually working on the climate march. The most amazing part to me about that story is... So I'm a climate activist. I'm actually working on an event in San Francisco for the, the Day of Action globally. And what's most amazing to me about that story is that it's a youth-led event. <laughs> so the fact that she's sticking around to kind of show up for the next generations is incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. So, thanks for sharing. So, uh, okay, that's a, that's a good piece. We'll just we'll end it there. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, I'll be here next week. I'll be here the week after. Keep in mind. That, uh, oh no, no, next week and the week after. Next week, um, I'm mean, going to say it's my birthday. So that seems, sounds like bring me something. I don't want a present. Uh, but I do want you to come because the staff is going to make a birthday party with cookies. That's it. Not, not having a bigger hopes. Cookies. That's it. <laughs> and then we'll we meet the week after and then we'll meet uh, in the new year. May all beings be peaceful and happy and not suffer and be companioned. Thing. Oh, thank you for good. So I thought I'd missed it. There's a little cake in there. A princess cake for a princess. Good job, yeah. It's just one of those little princess cakes. That's lovely. I figured you have enough family that can help you take it home. All right, so we will talk about a cake. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.